the underdog, the person with the new ideas, the person that is focusing on the customer is really the one that can outshine them all as long as they have perseverance and they just keep going. That's Kara Golden, founder of Hint and the best-selling author of Undaunted. That's when I thought, I have a choice. I could either quit or I could just throw the gas on and just start going. And as long as I've got customers, as long as I've got people that actually want this product and believe what I believe, who cares? I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Kara Golden to discuss the power of building a lovable brand, why constant innovation is critical to maintaining a competitive edge, and how to transform setbacks into opportunities. Dark days don't last forever. You have to be open to what's coming next. And I think in so many situations, maybe I could say that I didn't see it coming. You know, you feel blindsided or whatever, but often I don't see the light coming. And I know that the light is even brighter because I had a dark moment. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Kara Golden is the founder of Hint, the number one flavored water in the country and an iconic brand loved by millions. She shares her story of building this nine-figure business in her best-selling book, Undaunted, Overcoming Doubts and Doubters. I began our conversation by asking Kara what motivated her to write this book. I started journaling a few years ago. I was doing a ton of public speaking and sitting in different audiences as well were people who were asking me all kinds of questions along the way after hearing my talks. And I would take those questions as prompts for me. I would go back to my hotel room and I just started journaling. And after a few years, I had over 600 pages of a journal. And so that's what you read in Undaunted turned into chapters, of course. But for me, I never thought I was going to be an entrepreneur. I, I never thought I was going to be an author. For me, it was really a a way to connect people with my story because I thought if I could get my story out there to more people just through writing Undaunted, then maybe more people would actually go out and do hard things and things that were maybe not what they thought were in the cards, but instead know that, you know, not all, in fact, I think most successful people today actually have a lot more challenges than maybe people see on the surface. And as you really you talk about this throughout the book, with just all the different periods of adversity that you experience, all the different challenges and setbacks, I'm always interested like in asking entrepreneurs this, if you knew what the journey was going to be and all the things that you would go on to experience, all the problems you'd have to solve, would you have still done it at the onset? Like if you knew what it was going to be? No way. I think in some ways, like I was trying to figure out the game 
And like when I first started trying to get a bottle on the shelf at Whole Foods, I was, uh, I walked into the store and, you know, I was a tech executive for years. I was running the D2C partnerships at America Online and I was taking a little bit of a break. And that's when I went into my local Whole Foods after figuring out how to create the product that I wanted in my own kitchen. And I thought, I'm sure this product is out there. Why should I be cutting up fruit and throwing it in my water at home? Let me go find a bottle that has fruit in it without sweeteners. And when I didn't see this product in the market, that's when I thought, oh, I should just create this product. How many times have you ever said this? Like, not really serious. And and then I thought, I don't know, maybe I will. I don't know what I want to do yet. I was getting approached by Google and some others that were in Silicon Valley. And I just, I hadn't found the perfect tech thing. So in the meantime, I thought maybe I should just try and like create a beverage. If no one else will drink it, maybe I'll just have a lot in my kitchen because this is what I really want. And I didn't know about distributors. There was this whole new language that existed that I just had never even heard about. Like a cap, for example, that went on a bottle was called a closure you know, just stupid things like that, that I just was fascinated by that like existed. And I just thought, I wonder if I can figure this stuff out. I wonder if I can figure out how to find a distributor and maybe I'll be the next vitamin water. I mean, that'd be really fun. Little did I know how long it would take, all of the challenges along the way. You know, also the fact that we were not only just establishing a new brand and a new company, but a new category. And for those who have never thought about this, a new category within an industry is, I mean, it's like climbing Everest, I guess. I've never climbed Everest. I've had a few friends that have, but it's a lot to tackle. And and the main thing is, is that when you're creating a new category, which in, in our case is unsweetened flavored water, no one else was doing it. So I thought that was a good thing. Like I've got this product, this idea where there's no one else is doing it. I'm going to keep it really quiet. And then I'm going to just become the next big vitamin water. But when I tried to actually get it on the shelf, the response from grocery buyers was, well, if it's so great, then why isn't anyone else doing it? So I had to go and figure out how do I get an audience? How do I tackle this category and make it relevant. You know, one of the things that I talk about in the book is when you have competition. I remember when we first had a situation where Coca-Cola decided to do a knockoff product of Hint, and that was a bad day. I thought, here's the nail in the coffin. And then what I realized is that it's a disruption and it's hard when that comes along. But the main thing that you can do and the main thing that you can control is what you do. And so all that was doing was making us more relevant. We had a big guy that was coming into our space, and then he eventually decided he didn't want to play in this because it was going to take too long. So he wanted to focus on the rest of his business. So again, we ended up gaining space back and then more space. And I think that that's an important lesson for anybody in any category When you've got somebody who is a competitor, then the world starts to pay attention to what you're doing and and the importance of it. 
And I'm curious, what was that like? I mean, so there's going to be a lot of people listening to this. And of course, they deal with competition. It could be another business in their market. But when it's Coca-Cola and you're dealing with these Goliath players, and especially if I recall early on, you were told by an executive of Coca-Cola that you'd never be able to make this product sustainable. Like there was just no future here. If you could speak to that and what that experience was like. Yeah, well, it was probably, you know, a little bit into our journey. I mean, we weren't even... I guess a million in sales yet. I was I was realizing how hard this industry was and there was so much that I didn't know. I was I was doing great at figuring out a lot, but things like how to actually achieve a what I really wanted in a product, so a shelf-stable product with no preservatives. I didn't know how to get distribution across the US. I could figure it out in San Francisco where I lived, but actually getting product to Chicago and I didn't know how that all was going to happen. And I also needed capital. And so I was sharing this with a friend of mine and she mentioned that she knew somebody at at Coca-Cola who was very senior and she'd call him and see if he'd talk to me. And maybe there was a way for them to produce our product. Maybe there was a way for them to distribute the product. So I thought, what the heck? And it was then that I was kind of sharing the story. I was pretty proud of, of what I had built really from my kitchen and we were in just a few stores in the Bay Area. And that's when he interrupted me and said, sweetie, Americans love sweet. This product isn't going anywhere. And I thought, wait, did he just call me sweetie? I mean, it's, uh, you know, pretty shocking that he called me that. But it was at that moment when I did something that I think is really important to do, which is listen. When you hit a situation where there's definitely adversity, there's some sort of challenge in front of you, maybe it's time to just be silent for a minute and listen to what somebody is saying. And and it became clearer and clearer to me that this gentleman was really sharing the strategy that he had learned and he had believed. He had said it over and over again that people wanted sweet things and that the goal was really to get calories lower, use the word diet. When people were on to the word diet, maybe not being as healthy as they could, change it to zero, change it to something that really kept the consumer believing that it was a healthy perception product and maybe a healthy reality product. And When I got off the phone with him, it was actually a pleasant enough call outside of the fact that, you know, he's calling me sweetie on the phone. I thought, he just doesn't get it. He doesn't get what I see. And I had these customers that were buying it in San Francisco. Now I had to figure out if there were customers in Chicago and New York and other places. And that's when I thought, I have a choice. I could either quit, which I think he thought I was going to do, or I could just throw the gas on and just start going. And and as long as I've got customers, as long as I've got people that actually want this product and and believe what I believe, who cares what he says? That's such an important thing because I certainly walked into developing this product thinking that if somebody has more money, if somebody has has been in it longer, if somebody is a an expert, then I should fear them. But instead, what I realized is that the underdog, the person with the new ideas, the person that is focusing on the customer 
is really the one that can outshine them all as long as they have perseverance and they just keep going. I'm glad you mentioned, especially because the question that always comes up is like, how do you know when you're getting some sort of advice, whether that's actually good advice from somebody who has experience and has actually been there before versus that's just the way they see things and maybe they don't have the vision that you do and you relate it back to that you did have customers who love the product that you had use cases already were showing with this stuff works and there's people out there who absolutely are in love with it, um, that it wasn't just you know at a stage where you hadn't sold anything yet. Yeah, it's it's a great question. I mean, I think that I've always believed that you have to take it to market, right? And you have to actually test it. And frankly, I think that this is something in the tech industry that was kind of ingrained in me even before starting my own company is that you just don't really know, especially if in our case, nobody had done an unsweetened flavored water. So I've got a very senior executive telling me this is not what consumers want. And when you dial that back and figure out, okay, he's got an opinion, I've got an opinion, I've got customers that are buying it, I just need to find more of those customers. And maybe we can both exist in a world where we've both got beliefs and there's lots of different people. But I think that so often we just don't even try. We allow this wall to be built up in front of us because we think that there's somebody with more experience a better education, more money, whatever it is to get in the way. And I think that the people that actually take it to market and try and try and figure out how do they grow that circle of consumers is the one that ultimately wins. And, you know, I go back to the early days of of Apple and, you know, we all know Steve Jobs' story along the way. There were computers out there. There were home-based computers. I actually had an early version of an Apple. And and the reason why I was a customer is that it was different. It appealed to me. And it wasn't that I didn't understand the other computers that were out there, but I thought from a design standpoint, it was cool. And again, I think there's so many situations that I can think of where you've got the founder that maybe is a little crazy that's got an idea that I'm sure... In Steve's case, there were many people who said, who needs another computer? There's IBM, there's Dell, there's Microsoft, there's lots of other ones that are out there. But he figured out a way to create something that was a little bit different and find those consumers. So I read that you call yourself an accidental entrepreneur. And I want to talk about this because it seems like you know, you never necessarily set out to found the company. Like this wasn't really necessarily the goal from the onset. But I'd love to hear about some of the experiences that kind of shaped you because it seems like the persistence and the perseverance you had, which I think are very, very important traits in, in entrepreneurs. What life experiences kind of helped to shape you in that? I mean, so many, and I I think it's so much easier to go back in time and kind of connect the dots based on being able to have those experiences. But, you know, when I got out of college, I moved to New York and I was in journalism, was always, you know, a big writer. I, I loved being around that. I was actually poached out of Time Magazine to go to a little startup called CNN. There was this guy, Ted Turner, who had this dream for 24-hour news. And I knew what CNN was primarily because I couldn't get cable in, uh, or I couldn't get any television at all unless I had cable in my New York City apartment. I knew what CNN was. I thought, 
maybe I'll go there. It's different than being in the magazine industry, but I'll go learn. And being able to see Ted like running around the office and telling everybody in a Southern accent that the world's got to have 24-hour news. There were days when we sat there and said, maybe, maybe not. But we just thought he was kind of funny. He was putting those stakes in the ground that this is what is important. Did I know then that I was going to go start my own company? No, but you look back on times like that where little things would happen along the way that hockey sticked the company. In the case of CNN, it was the Gulf War. And I was there during that time. And I remember very, very clearly where the world changed, right? CNN changed at that point. And then again, when I moved out to... Silicon Valley and and watching, I was working for a little startup that was doing CD-ROM shopping that was a spin out of Apple, that Apple had booted this little project out of Apple. It was a Steve Jobs idea. It was pretty cool. He took graphics and put them on a disc. And the idea that Steve had was that dial-up services, this is in the 90s when, you know, there was no broadband were too slow for graphics. And so there were online services that were not able to carry the graphics. So Steve's idea was just throw them on a disc and just tell the consumer to just keep upgrading the disc and just we'll send them out a bunch of discs and it'll be great. Well, Apple didn't want to do that. They didn't want to be in that business. And so some guys that worked for Steve started this company called Two Market and I found them. I had been a huge Steve Jobs fan. I didn't really understand technology or sort of how it worked, but what I did know how to do was take a new idea like what I was doing at CNN and go out and sell it and make people understand through stories how it applies to them and how it can help them. And so, again, I think it's uh, really taking those experiences where you started from nothing to create something gave me the confidence to be able to take an idea like Hint and actually grow it into more. And then this little startup that I was at was acquired by a company called America Online. I'm sure Steve Case wouldn't want to hear this, but he was he was not in first place in the online services. There were companies like CompuServe and Prodigy that arguably were killing them. And America Online was the underdog. And so when we were acquired, it, it wasn't my choice to go and work for America Online. It was part of an acquisition that I agreed to be a part of. And then, you know, what we saw was, was really the hockey stick. We really integrated this channel strategy. And, you know, that was, again, a time where I saw not only that you can be number three, you can differentiate in ways that are different, and that will ultimately make you number one. And so having all those different experiences, I think gave me confidence more than anything else that these are really normal people. They seem kind of godlike, right, to most people. But for me, it was, I feel really lucky and fortunate that I was able to see from an inside view how they did it and that you just have to keep going. And, you know, truly, I think perseverance is so key that so many people give up and or run out of money or, 
you know, have some challenge along the way. And I think more than anything, it's just really about putting stakes in the ground, figuring out how to be different and being able to share your story with consumers so that they can find you relevant and continue to support you. And it's interesting because after America Online was done, I guess, acquiring nearly every company that you'd worked at, which I think is in itself kind of ironic, but there's always a price to be paid, right? So you're you're traveling, you're growing, all these things are, are just happening. I think very good things, but I believe you described that during this period, like you had like a diet soda habit, right? So this, you were drinking like 10, 12 cans per day. Was that the impetus behind like this idea of hint? Like, I, I just, I'd love to hear about like, at what point did you decide, okay, there's gotta be a different way. And then also, you you being the one who was actually the catalyst behind that. Yeah, I think for me, I was, I think like a lot of people who have children, you start looking at, I think one of the things that I always share with new parents is I've never felt so stupid until I had kids, right? Like I'm trying to figure out what kind of stroller do I buy and diapers and food. And, you know, I had no idea. I had babysat, I guess, a little bit growing up, but I just was clueless on so many levels. So as I started really getting the hang of it and figuring out the good things to put in my kids' bodies, then I started thinking about, well, I should be practicing what I'm preaching and, you know, things that are real food and not so much sugar and all these things, do they really apply in my own life? And when one day I looked down at my Diet Coke that I was so fond of, that's when I thought, gosh, it's got so much junk in there. I would never give it to my kids. Why am I okay with it in my own life? And I think being an athlete to some extent, when I decide that I'm just not going to do something anymore, I just set my mind to it and I'm like, done. And I remember my husband saying to me, you know, you've been drinking Diet Coke for many, many years. How can you just stop? And I'm like, watch me. It's like the challenge is, is on now. And it was hard. I mean, it was really, really hard. But the goal that I had not really set, I had wanted to lose weight for a long time. It was really challenging for me. And I had some other health issues that I wanted to figure out, including I had terrible acne on my skin that I never even thought that it was what I was eating or drinking. And when I saw all of those things change for me, I lost over 20 pounds in two and a half weeks. My skin cleared up. I thought, holy moly, like this is my diet soda. I mean, how could this happen? And so I think that's when I really thought, gosh, I wish more people knew what I just experienced. And I think that if I could develop a product that could really help people get healthy, then that's a pretty cool thing to have as my legacy, right? And again, for my family, I thought, here's these little people that I'm putting the right things in their body. If I'm actually going to go do something at all, work-wise, maybe I do something that has impact. Maybe they will look at me as somebody that they look up to because I'm able to do something that really helped people where they were challenged in some way. And 
I think that's what we've done at Hint. I mean, it's 16 and a half years later. I think the number of consumers, I've had three emails today from consumers who have said to me, you know, you've changed my life just by drinking this product. And I think it sounds funny to people that maybe have never gotten those emails from customers or maybe have never tried Hint. They don't have health issues that they're trying to figure out. But when you get people who are challenged with, you know, their weight or drinking lots of water or one of the emails this morning was from a chemotherapy patient who's having a really hard time getting through chemo treatments that you get a metallic taste in your mouth um, and Hint helps mask that metallic taste. It's a powerful thing when you find a product that is able to help you. And yet it doesn't say that it's the diabetic water or the cancer water. There's many people who don't have those health issues that drink it as well. But to create a company that can really have that much impact, I think is pretty awesome. And I imagine this is gonna be challenging to do on a podcast for anybody listening, but I want to make sure people at least get a sense of how Hint is different. So if someone's listening and they're saying, okay, well, I've tried flavored water before, or what I was drinking before was that flavored smart water. And then I tried Hint and I'm like, okay, this is on a completely different level. This tastes way better. How would you describe it? Like, I mean, I'm sure you do this quite often, but just to help somebody understand who has perhaps not tried it before, who may have some preconceived notion of, of flavored water. Yeah, well, the challenge with most flavored waters is that they are sweetened. And so a lot of people don't realize it because maybe they're looking at the calorie counts, for example, and they're like, no, 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 I I drink uh, this flavored water and it doesn't have any calories in it. So, well, the challenge today for so many people is that the uh, probably the number one diet sweetener today is stevia. And so stevia is actually incredibly sweet. And so what happens when it goes in the body is that it actually messes with people's, not only with your metabolism, but also with your insulin levels. And so most people don't pay attention to insulin levels unless you're diabetic. But what was happening for me for many, many years, and this was pre-stevia with sweeteners, diet sweeteners like NutraSweet and aspartame, and even before that, saccharin, is that your body is producing this insulin. And so you're, once you cannot control this insulin anymore, it ends up turning into body fat. That is sort of the key thing with so many of these diet drinks that are out there. But I think that the other thing is, is that this idea of dumping a flavor into a drink, people are not using real stuff. In fact, that was part of what I wanted to do early on when I started looking at the different flavors that were out there was actually do things that are plant-based. Um, it's always either fruit, sometimes we're using vegetables as well, but things in, in the flavoring systems for food, you may have heard that, you know, the word natural for so many people means different things. The FDA uh, regulations around natural include things like cockroach wings and uh, other things that are, you know, beetle juice. I won't tell you what part of the beetle that it's from, but things that are kind of nasty that I don't really want to be drinking, frankly. I don't really want to know about it. Um, are they natural? Sure. But they're not necessarily what the consumer wants in their drinks. And so I thought, 
I really want to do something. I want to create a well-rounded drink where people understand what they're drinking. And again, it doesn't have any sweeteners in it. So that's really been the key to hint, at least on the beverage side of things from day one, is to create a product that doesn't have sweeteners in it. And that's the promise to consumers. And and it's hard. I'm sure you've had as a as an entrepreneur too, where along the way you've got people who have an idea to change what you do or add on to what you do. And, you know, it's the entrepreneur's dilemma, right? Figuring out how do you go in a different direction? And maybe you can get bigger faster, but what is your promise to consumers? And if you go in different directions, do you take your eye off the ball of really creating something that the consumer knows you for. I think that that's the key thing. And I'm curious, as, as we discuss this, like how much knowledge did you have prior to founding Hint just about the beverage industry in general? So the only knowledge I had was that I drank Diet Coke. That was it. I think I knew that there was Diet Pepsi out there. I wasn't a Diet Pepsi drinker, but it was definitely, you know, that was it. My dad had actually been in the food industry. He founded a brand that was inside of a large company, a brand called Healthy Choice. I remember when I decided to go into the beverage industry, I asked my dad, come on, you've been in the industry. You know how to get a product on the shelves of the local supermarket. And that's a whole other piece of it, too, that when people are starting something from scratch and you're not doing it, from a perspective of being inside of a Coca-Cola or Kraft or ConAgra, some big company, these guys, they own a big chunk of the supermarket. And literally, it's real estate inside these stores. And if you ever come out to San Francisco or we meet in Atlanta, I'll walk you down the aisles. I've taken friends down, you know, and I've shown them. I don't even know who in the ice cream industry what they own, but I could guess now I can walk down an aisle and I'd say dryers, for example, owns 60% of this and, and I can figure it out pretty quickly. And, and again, it's like an, a world that I didn't even know existed, even though my dad was in that industry. You know, what I've learned is that it's, it's so much tougher to actually be able to grow it from nothing to something. And then even when you get it a little bit bigger, then you've got more and more competition that's coming at you because potentially you are taking away share from them in the supermarket. And when you start showing up where you've got your sales per square foot is higher than some of these big brands, you're in trouble. They're coming for you. And you've got to figure out how do I continue to differentiate? How do I continue to get different distribution where that's the only way that I'm going to be able to stay alive? And and so for us, I think one way that we differentiated is we got our product into these micro kitchens at Google. And people say like, oh, yeah, you were in the tech industry. It was so obvious that you went and did that. No, I mean, I was kind of trying to figure out if I shut this little idea down that I had started and they were interviewing me for a job. And that's when this guy, Omid Cortesani, said to me, maybe you should talk to the chef, Charlie, and see if he wants some of your drinks in our kitchen because we don't have any drinks. And that turned into 
our biggest account was Google. And, you know, when Cheryl left Google and went to Facebook, her assistant called me and said, hey, Cheryl, I used to get it at Google. Can we get it at Facebook? I'm like, sure, I'll just drive my Grand Cherokee down to Facebook and bring some cases. And again, those businesses, that was the start of having different distribution. And, you know, the one, the last thing I'll say, it's funny thinking back on those days because we were the only drink inside of Google for 18 months. There was no other drink. And as Google was growing, I mean, it was crazy. They were, they'd reach out to us and they'd say, hey, can we actually have a couple of employees to just come and merchandise refrigerators inside of Google? We'll give them, you know, security clearance and everything else. And it was insane. Very different than the situation with what was going on in, in grocery stores. So very, very different setup for us. And it's a dream come true when you can be the only one in a, in a distribution store. And as I think about all this, I have to wonder if not knowing like the aspects of like when you don't know what you don't know, it was an advantage in a sense of just driving a lot of creativity and innovation. I'm curious just with everything from creating the product to the bottling, to the distribution, to building the brand, all this stuff. What was the most challenging part? It's funny. I mean, I have a timeline that I've gone through with the team, especially new team members where I'll look at situations, I'll set goals, right? And then you go and you achieve that. A Starbucks was one of those where I thought one day we're going to, they're going to have something else besides coffee in here. We're going to get in these cases and we're going to have hint in there. And I eventually achieved those goals. But I think when those goals happen, even if you are successful, even if you feel like you know what success is for the other side of the table in a situation, sometimes things come up and they just explode, right? In this case, we got kicked out of Starbucks. We had had like a year and a half of traction in there and we were doing great and everything was awesome. And then it wasn't. And I think that when you get in a situation where that happens and it happens to you enough, that's when you sit there and think about, well, what could I have done? And I think the question and, and the answer to that is, that you have options. Because when you don't have lots of clients, when you don't have lots of competitors to Starbucks, when you're putting all your eggs in one basket, then those surprises end up being detrimental to the life of your company, right? And so I think that's kind of the key thing that I've learned along the way is that always have options. Because when you don't have options, that's when you feel like, They've got you by the throat, right? And then you make bad decisions because you've you've got to stay alive, right? And I think like no one ever wants to be in those situations, but I think it's always important to be thinking about how do I diversify? How do I not have all my distribution in Google, even though it's, you know, an incredible place to be and place to start? How do I go find more of those? And I think just always be on your toes finding those. I'm sure in your business too, right? You're, especially when everything is great, you just think like, okay, I'm going to kick back. And I mean, do you feel that way as well? It's interesting because at our at our recent conference, I shared kind of the the story of Crisp and, and all the lessons learned. And what was interesting to me as I was reflecting on that when we were creating the presentation, at least in my case, I found that 
after every great thing that had happened, after every kind of, I guess, leap that the business had made, on the other side of that was some huge bit of adversity that I did not even know was waiting for me. And, it, and then the cycle would repeat. Something amazing would happen. I'd feel that every problem was solved right before a massive problem larger than anything I could have imagined was looming. And then we'd solve that problem. And then I'd think, okay, we're getting the hang of this. And then another massive problem. And it was just, it's literally that year after year, after year, after year, things that at first blindsided me. Now I've come to expect them. It sounds like you've had a, a similar journey in the sense that after every great thing. So like in the example of Starbucks, you get like distribution at all these Starbucks. And then I guess what Howard Schultz decides, they want to add food to the Starbucks offerings, right? They need to free up some like refrigeration real estate, right? So then they pull hint, things like that. I'm just curious, what are those days like for you? And then how do you bounce back from them? I think it's always looking at, they don't stay bad for very long. And it sounds like you've had those situations too, where it really is a cycle. And that's what, it's so great to be able to go back and share those stories too. Because I think oftentimes people, I think there's still a lot of people out there that don't want to talk about, you know, their challenges or their failures. And I think that if you can actually be upfront about those, first of all, I think opening up is kind of your own therapy session, right? Where you talk about it and it's definitely got some challenges. People are going to learn from them. They'll ask you questions that maybe a lot of times you have been asked, but other times you haven't been asked along the way. The key thing is just to know that dark days don't last forever. And that you have to be open to what's coming next. And I think in so many situations, maybe I could say that I didn't see it coming to your point where, you know, you feel blindsided or whatever, but often I don't see the light coming, right? And I know that the light is even brighter because I had a dark moment. I'm such a huge believer in that, you know, when you think about it, it's very exciting and that's what you have to believe. But instead, if you just sit and you think I'm a failure, I've always got challenges, my life sucks, whatever, then I don't think you're open to the new things. I think you've got to open yourself up and know that there's things that are coming around the corner. You've got to wake up every morning and think about, okay, what are the things that I want to go accomplish that maybe I didn't know that I had time to do or hadn't really, you know, blue sky things like a lot. And the more you do that, the more you're going to find your good, your light. It's almost like setbacks sort people. And what would we be without them? Because any entrepreneur that I've spoken with that has achieved anything of impact or significance, there's always the stories of like adversity and here are the, not just the challenge that I experienced, but more importantly, the lessons, like here's how this happened for me. So with every challenge, at least that I've experienced, there was always something in that, that there was a lesson that could be applied to, you know, really not just what the solution would be, but to making any sort of forward progress. And I'm curious, so something we share is that we both, work with our spouses. And I'm curious as to how that dynamic, personally and professionally, what was that like you know, with, with you and your husband, Theo, and, and just throughout this journey, what, what has that been like in terms of building a family while also building this business? It's funny. I never thought, like people have always asked me, did you always know you wanted to work with your husband? No, not at all. I think for, for us, we were just 
We were incredibly busy people. He was an intellectual property, Silicon Valley attorney. Here he sees his wife with this crazy idea to start a beverage company. And I'm like, hey, can you go take product to Google for me? And, you know, he was like, sure, you know, I'll go drive it down for you. And I mean, that was like the beginnings. And what he realized was this mission and this passion to actually help people and to change society for the better was something that he really believed. He's a son of a doctor. I mean, he really believed that health was something that if you didn't have it, no matter how much money you had, no matter what your gender was, you know, where you lived, like the world was hard. And so he thought, you know, this is really interesting that you've stumbled upon something that really can help people. And, you know, I'll help you out while I'm trying to figure out exactly what I'm going to do next. And, you know, we've been married for 26 years and four kids. And I think we always had different skill sets. I always share, uh, I don't know if your wife has similar skill sets, but we're really, really different. And we both really appreciate each other's skill sets. So it's very natural for us to kind of go from idea to execution between the two of us. And it's not, I think I probably used to be more on the idea side and he was on the execution. I think we've learned from each other over the years. I always share with people, for example, he came in almost 17 years ago now and started running operations and helping. He had never had any experience in operations. And he spent a lot of time at bottling plants over you know the years. And I spend a lot less time at bottling plants, but I always want to know about the aspect of bottling this product and really understanding it. And I think that's the key thing. I may not spend the largest percentage with it, but I, I think I always want to be able to do that. And so having like a clear divide in responsibilities, I think is not necessarily the way we've done it. Just like, you know, with parenting, it has to be like a yin and yang. It has to be, you know, you work with each other. And I think that that's the key thing. And as all this is happening, because one of the things that really stuck out to me was the brand that you had developed in Hint. Like, did you ever expect that to happen of just, you know, not people just enjoying the product, but literally like the brand that would take off and then also seeing it not just in Silicon Valley, but just in businesses really all over the country and beyond. What are your thoughts on the brand itself? How much of that was by design? I think very much like from the beginning, I had this idea. I mean, it's funny. Somebody was just asking me this question the other day that they're like, how did you decide to put the hint down the side of the bottle? I just had this, I had this vision that hint should just be on, on the side. I don't, I don't know. I didn't know a lot about label design or anything, but I really, I think I looked around at a lot of different products and stores and for me, I just thought that I'll just keep trying it. I, you know, it's interesting in the food and beverage industry, one thing that I've really believed is kind of different than the tech industry is that there's this idea that when you launch something that you don't change it. In the tech industry, it's updates, 2.0, go back to Apple again. I always tell people that there's like at least two iterations of the iPhone that is sitting in a safe inside of Apple offices right now that is just watching how the consumers respond to this iPhone. 
And that's not true in food and beverage. They just create an entirely new brand. Maybe they change like a sweetener after they start seeing sales fall or or whatever. But for me, I just kept thinking, let's just get it on the shelf. Let's see how consumers respond to something. And then we'll just change it over time. And I think like taking what I've learned from the tech industry and bringing it into a different industry and not having the experience too is something that a lot of people can learn from that now we've seen it in many companies. Look at Warby Parker, for example. Those guys didn't work at Luxottica. You know, many, many others over the years. I mean, I know you're friends with Gary Vaynerchuk. I mean, Gary didn't come from the wine industry, right? He's just, he liked wine. He had ideas about it. And then he went and thought about a different way to actually get it in people's hands. So bringing in a different mindset, bringing in something unique, it it's interesting because it takes a lot of courage because I think that the conventional wisdom and what you hear from family and friends in particular when you've got an idea and you want to share it with people is, you don't know anything. You haven't been in that industry. You're going to fail, right? It's going to cost a lot of money. How are you going to go up against Coke and Pepsi? How are you going to go up against, you know, the big guys? And I think you just have to, you have to figure out that it's okay to try, right? And see what happens. And You know, I think that's true with every successful person out there that is doing something a little bit different. And speaking of courage, there's something that you did, and I love that you did this because I'm sure that if this was in some huge corporation, this would have never happened. And and I imagine maybe you got even some resistance from this, but I want to talk about like, you could have stayed in the beverage industry and the expansion of the products of introducing a sunscreen, a deodorant and, and so on. It's just, I'd love to hear kind of like what led to doing that because I mean, they're all amazing products, but what was kind of the impetus behind that? And what were some of the conversations that were taking place when you decided to do that? Yeah, I mean, I guess sunscreen was the first one that we developed outside of the drinks. And the key thing that I started seeing early on from and hearing from our consumers was that they would ask me, I mean, here's somebody who didn't have any experience in the beverage industry. They had grown to love Hint and they would come to me because I had solved a problem, I guess, for them. And they would come to me and ask me things like, you know, what kind of chips do you eat? What kind of sunscreen? Because I was like the detective, I guess. I don't know. Like it was an everyday occurrence. I would hear from consumers asking me these questions. And that's when I started to look for myself for a great sunscreen. And I I still do this today. I mean, I'm constantly like looking at products and thinking, why isn't it? like that. I didn't like sunscreen that were better for you sunscreens because they all left me white. They weren't clear at the time. And they had zinc that they hadn't mastered how to do that formulation without making everybody white. And I actually had pre-cancer on my nose. And that's when I thought, you know, I should probably wear a lot more sunscreen than I do. And again, I couldn't find the product. I think there's multiple types of entrepreneurs. There's entrepreneurs that see success, you know, maybe I'll pick on vitamin water. Maybe you see vitamin water and you're like, okay, I'm going to go create another vitamin drink because one is successful. I'm the kind of entrepreneur that won't start a company unless I don't see it. 
like my idea is different and unique. And I believe that there's a customer out there that would buy it. I'm not sure what is better, frankly. I think maybe the latter, which is what I am, is more insane, takes longer to find those holes in the market and then go after it. But I'm also okay with failure. So I didn't know whether or not the consumer would want a sunscreen that not only was a better formulation, but I thought that they would probably like the price point because the our sunscreens are dermatology quality that are selling for less than copper tone on you know Amazon, mostly online today. But the key thing for me was also the smell. I really believed that in order for consumers to keep wanting to come back, I think smell is such a key thing that, you know, if you've got a stinky product, maybe you'll try it once in any category, but think about it. Your brain is so powerful and it thinks about, I don't want to buy that product anymore because it smells. I thought the only smells that the sunscreen company uses is the coconut smell, the tropical-ish one, and unscented. And to some, unscented actually smells terrible. So I thought, why can't we use grapefruit and some of the others, you know, a better version of pineapple and pear? And maybe people would actually want to wear that around all day versus actually smelling like the tropical that smells so nasty to so many people. So that was really the goal. And then we developed a deodorant as well. Um, The key thing, I didn't want to use palm oil, which is in a lot of the even natural deodorants that are out there. Uh, My dad had Alzheimer's. So one of the things that I wanted to avoid was aluminum. So a lot of people are not as familiar with this, but antiperspirant all has aluminum in it. Um, It blocks your sweat glands. That's uh, not such a great thing for anybody. It's convenient, but I wanted to see if I really wanted, if I really needed to be doing that or not, because aluminum and being around your lymph nodes was not that great. And it ends up for Alzheimer's research too, that brain health is affected by having too much aluminum inside your system. And I thought the number one thing that really shocked me was learning that something I'd put on my body since I was 13 years old could actually put me in a really bad place for a disease that sucks, right? And I thought if I could develop a product that is great, that is natural, but doesn't have aluminum in it, that would be awesome. I gave lots of my friends who were doing natural deodorants uh, this idea. I said, go do this. Don't put coconut in it. Use Don't use palm oil. And uh, nobody would do it. So I said, eh, I'll just go formulate it and figure it out. So that was the story on that. And I guess coming back to the title of the book, because I'm, I'm sure this was very intentional. A lot of what we've been discussing is there's this huge, I guess, almost like learning curve with, with much of what you're doing. It could be incredibly intimidating. It could be very, very complex and challenging. How do you remain undaunted? I think every day, looking back on how far we've come. So I think that remembering those days of getting that first bottle on the shelf, remembering those letters, those phone conversations from consumers, also employees that 
have, you know, supported me for all these years to really build on on this dream, which I guess in many ways was kind of like Ted Turner back in, you know, I'd said, everyone needs an unsweetened flavored water. I'm sure there were moments where people thought, I don't know if they do really, but, and to see it be the level that it is today is just awesome. You know, I never imagined, I never even imagined getting to a million dollars in sales, right? Much less a quarter of a billion where we are today. I mean, it's crazy to think that. So my hope in really sharing our story is helping others know that you can't achieve unless you start and you've got to start somewhere and you've got to try and figure out if there's customers out there that, you know, want what you're selling and want what you are thinking about. And I think if more people did that, I mean, that's how the world changes. That's how we get better. We just keep innovating. And what I know is that large companies are not great at innovating. They instead are trying to keep their head above water. They don't think that the world needs an unsweetened flavored water, right? They just keep trying to sell what they have and get in, get that message out there to more people because it's doing well. But the more we can innovate and try and change, that's progress. And Kara, as we come to a close, this being the Game Changing Attorney podcast, what does being a game changer mean to you? I think living undaunted and and just throwing yourself in and trying and not overthinking things. Because I think that to your point, there will be adversity. There will be challenges along the way. And you have to play it out. And you have to know that everyone's got a journey. Everyone's got a story, right, along the way. And the more that you embrace it and accept it and let the timeline play out, the more you will know who you are and what you can do. I want to give a huge thank you to Kara Golden for taking the time to speak with us today. You know, what particularly resonated with me was when Kara said that the greatest factor in determining our level of success is how we handle the obstacles that stand in the way of making progress. The best leaders persist even when they're fearful and discouraged. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you can leave a review and share this podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner. And you know what? Maybe more than one. For more information on our interview with Kara Golden, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. And join us next time when we'll be speaking with the CEO and managing partner of Puget Law, Dan Garrell. Everybody around us, they were all curling up. They were all thrown in the towel. And I just said, I don't have that option. I got to make hay. We got big time into doubling and tripling our, our marketing efforts, buying up outdoor advertising because nobody else was doing it. I took the lead on look for opportunity everywhere. Be be the one that's out there seizing that opportunity and you owe it to your team. I mean, I, I was drinking that Kool-Aid like I was in the desert. That's next time on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. <laughs>